0: It's July 14th. Welcome to the Vegetable Beat, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season. My name is Dennis Van Dyke. I am with the uh, Ontario Ministry of Agriculture. Uh, You're stuck with me this week as your host, Mike Renke, in the background with MSU. He's our Zoom engineer pulling the strings behind the curtain. Uh, Today we'll be speaking with Travis Kramer, also from the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture. And uh, we're going to talk about everything to do with garlic. So Travis, welcome. Thank you for having me we'll do a more formal introduction after uh, we get some housekeeping out of the way. So there's a lot of you growing growers out there. We want your questions uh, answered. So if you're listening live via Zoom um, at glveg.net slash listen or Facebook at facebook.com slash You can submit your questions in the chat. Uh, so either Q&A box on Zoom or in the Facebook comment section as well. We will try to answer them as we go and others will save for the end. If you are a certified crop advisor, there are CCA credits available to live listeners. If you're in Michigan, restricted use pesticide certification credits are also available. And if you'd like CCA or RUP credits, just put your name and your email in the chat or in the Facebook comments and we can follow up afterwards. Uh, So with some housekeeping out of the way, um, for those of you that maybe don't know Travis or are familiar with Travis, uh, why don't you give us a kind of a quick rundown of of yourself and, and what you do, what you work on.
1: Right on. Well, uh, vegetable crop specialist for alliums, brassicas, and leafy greens. So that includes you know, onions, garlic, leeks, shallots, and brassicas are Brussels sprouts, cabbage, broccoli, and uh, cauliflower. And then leafy greens like spinach or celery. And I'm located in the Guelph office in Ontario, Canada. And out of the 15 crops that I cover, garlic is one that I get a lot of questions about. Yeah, it seems that people
0: that grow garlic or are involved in garlic seem to be really passionate about garlic. <laughs> more, more so than most other vegetables. Like maybe potato growers are very passionate about oh, potatoes, okay. but it's just seems that, <laughs> that garlic growers seem to be really passionate about uh about garlic. Uh,
1: it's true. It's because it's such a great crop. I think <laughs> uh I think it's a great crop. Like I, I think you you enjoy it as well, right? And cooking, yes. Not so much growing, but uh <laughs> cooking for sure. Uh, how did you get into garlic? I guess. Wow. Um, I think my my parents were uh, garlic connoisseurs as well. Uh, they were convinced on the medicinal properties. I think it was a major part of my childhood, uh, especially if I was sick. I was uh, forced to consume garlic, um, which I think was a good thing looking back and. Yeah, I think garlic is a pretty spectacular vegetable. It's uh, a functional food, so it's a a vegetable, an herb, and it has those medicinal properties. Cool. So we have some listeners that might be from
0: outside of our region, the Great Lakes or uh, Midwest region. So maybe just for the sake of those folks, why don't we want to ask you about the growing season in Ontario? Sort of maybe people can compare. So what's the growing season like for garlic here?
1: Uh, In Ontario... I would most growers plant in the fall, um, and they're planting predominantly hardneck cultivars that like our uh, temperate climate. So they plant in October, November. Uh, a lot of them have the goal of the date of the first fall frost, uh, but some growers have really good luck planting in September. And uh, I, I know one gr- grower that grows as early as late or it's our plants as early as late August. So, um the goal is to get root establishment uh before uh winter sets in, but you don't want there to be too much growth that the plant bolts and then there's not enough um storage left in that clove uh for it to put up new sprouts in the following spring. So, I uh yeah, I mentioned that we we generally grow hardneck cultivars. And I would say the most popular is music. However, there are 15 other cultivars that uh, perform just as well. Go so, cool. Uh, and then you're harvesting around this time or July, August. Is that sort of the idea that? Yeah, so uh, softneck cultivars have been harvested the last week, which uh, so about that first or second week of July. And those hardneck cultivars tend to be the third or fourth week it's a weird year where we have had a lot of moisture in the last two weeks and a lot of plants that might've been starting to shut down, um, started to perk up again. And a lot of growers, their goal is to harvest when 50% of those leaves are yellow and, uh, have started to senesce. And, um, if you've got a large acreage, you might start at 60. And by the time you're halfway through the crop, hopefully you're at that 50% point, And then, um, near the end. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the idea is you don't want to pull it too green, uh, because then it's not going to store as long and pulling early often, um, while well, you're not getting the best possible yield. So I'd say the third week of July is when most of har- uh, garlic harvest will happen. And that will be next week for us. Cool. Uh, in your opinion,
0: sort of what's probably the most important thing to remember growing garlic. Is there one thing
1: if if you're if you're obtaining, well, I, I guess like when you're starting out obtaining planting stock, um, look for cloves that are firm, that have an intact basal plate, the um the part of the, the plant that is below the clove and above the roots. Uh make sure that the clove is free of lesions or bruises or or any sort of wounding and um has no fungal growth because That fungal growth is going to be colonizing that clove before or while the roots are trying to establish and it it could potentially weaken the plant and you could have problems with winter kill. So, um, and I would say before even obtaining planting stock, uh, send some of those cloves that you're thinking about planting to a diagnostic clinic and test for nematodes. Um, You know, uh, nematodes, once you've got them in that planting stock, they're, um, very difficult to manage. The best step is prevention. And remember that even if you test for nematodes and they're free of nematodes, those that planting stock can still have fungi, bacteria, mites, and viruses.
0: Okay, so that seems like it could apply to new growers and existing growers. So they're having that good, good planting stock, that clean, clean seed planting stock. That's uh, right. I'm probably more familiar with potatoes, and in potatoes at least, it's a similar thing. You know, a good planting stock, good seed to start. But we also have a certification. Um, process where you have to sort of plant clean seed and then that's regulated and you know they clean up varieties and sort of that kind of thing so with another veget- vegetatively propagated crop like garlic do you have something similar where it's like certified or anything like
1: that we we don't have a certification program uh like they do for potatoes potatoes is is really well done and and maybe someday we can get somewhere close to that but we do have a clean seed program uh in Ontario that started back up again, but to, to do one, one step back um, the reason why clean seed uh, is, is important for garlic is that um, there's a lot of viruses hanging around in this vegetatively propagated crop. So the, the mother plant, if it has a virus, those daughter cloves are going to have that virus as well. And viruses are spread by sap sucking insects like aphids or um, thrips and and they're they're moving around these viruses. Some of them show symptoms like uh, garlic common latent virus or um, the viruses that make up the garlic mosaic complex, um, or other viruses that include iris yellow spot virus. So these are these are viruses that can cause symptoms in garlic, and uh, and these are the ones that we can test for. We have primers for, but there are others that. Infect garlic that are asymptomatic, don't show symptoms that are still causing a yield drag. So uh, seeing the benefits that potato growers had with a clean seed program, the garlic growers in the early 2000s started a clean seed program at the New Liskert spud unit. And uh, they cleaned up the predominantly grown cultivar in Ontario, Music, and found that compared to the conventional stock, this cleaned up virus freed music had a, uh, a yield increase of 25 to 50%. And um, they basically did this with meristem tissue culture and they took the very tip of the scape, they put it into a growth media that allowed for shoot or root growth and allowed these plants to be propagated and multiplied in tissue culture and tested for viruses as well as um, bacteria or fungi that might be present and the result is a plant that has been freed of all of the known viruses that uh, target garlic and a that yield drag is is now
0: gone. That's a pretty dramatic increase I would say like that's that's Pretty appealing, I w- uh, for sure. If you're uh, if you're selling a twenty five to fifty percent increase in yield, um, <laughs> yeah, I would say that's that's causing quite quite a drag. Um, do you have some sort of suggestions, or is there a way that a garlic grower could incorporate some of this clean seed into their into their practice and sort of um, right
1: start cleaning up their stock, I guess, and get that and get that yield increase. Well, right now the garlic growers association are the ones that handle the, the seed stock and it's available to members uh, that grow garlic in Ontario. Uh, but the idea is that the, the spud unit creates these roundels. That, that's what they kind of term this virus freed um, material. So you've got the bulb, which is made up of cloves and then that that plant produces a scape and inside the scape there's bulbils and those are vegetatively um, uh, clonal, uh, share the same genetics a round L is different than a ball bill a round L okay. is specifically from this, um, tissue culture program. Okay. And Does it look these, similar to a garlic bulb? It looks like a, of a, a round onion set, I would say, okay. um, a, a little bit larger than a, uh, a ball bill and, and growers are able to purchase these and plant them. And next year you might get something the size of a, a golf ball or it might have one or two cloves there might be some clove differentiation there and then the year after you get a normal size bulb and then the third year is when it it really gets large and and you get that larger um, that larger bulb so sorry yeah you asked how a grower could implement this into a in, into their their program so um let's say that a grower buys or purchases uh, 400 roundels, um, or 500 grams of roundels. And that, that might cost them, um, somewhere under a thousand dollars. if they were to, um, uh, multiply that and, uh, next year get, um, you know, a, a whole bunch of golf ball size stuff. And then the year after that, get maybe, um, close to 3000 plants and then multiply that by six. If it divides by six, uh, with that multiplication rate, you might be up to, uh, just under an acre of plants. And then, uh, the year after that, you might be up to two acres and the year after that you're at 10 acres. So 450 roundels, uh, the rule of thumb is that that takes five years to reach your 10 acres and on 10 acres, you could say that your average yield would be, um, 3000 pounds per acre. So that's 30,000 pounds and a 25% yield increase. Uh, I believe that's around 7,000 uh, extra pounds of garlic. And if you value that at $6 a pound, that's $40,000, $45,000 worth of, um, or that's a bonus that you're you're capturing that uh, was normally part of that viral yield drag. And if it's as far as 50% yield increase, that's, that's 90,000. So if you're growing costs, of that clean planning stock over that five-year period is less than $45,000, it's it's worth considering. And that's a conservative estimate. Like you could grow it out for six years instead of that five, um, you're probably going to be able to sell it for more than that $6 a pound that I quoted earlier. And on top of that, uh, just as you see in potatoes, this system would produce uh, reduce the amount of pathogens in the field, rots and storage, which leads to increased storability and then there's not going to be a buildup of nematodes. Yeah. Is this, is this the sort of thing that um, you have to keep separate from your regular stock? Could you kind of keep it in the field there? How, how I, much I would keep it separate for as long as possible. And and really it depends on every grower's uh, individual growing situation. So there are going to be some growers that might have um, a growing area that has lighting, fertilizer, and, um, they're, they're, they they've got, they, they figured it out uh, with uh, insect vents and there's no aphids in there to transfer viruses around. And you can keep that clean seed clean for a long time inside where there might be some growers that just put it outside. They might throw a exclusion net or a row cover on to prevent aphids or, or uh, stuff from moving in and, and moving viruses from their conventional field into that clean seed. But ideally... You know, if you had a field a kilometer away and there were some trees or some other crops, that aphid is bouncing around. And the more crops between it and your two garlic plants, the less likely that you're going to have a virus transferred from that conventional stock. Right. Right.
0: For sure. Um, you mentioned um sort of the scape and then ball bills. Um, and that those are they're sort of clones. Is that like, is it a flower? There's a bulb of a flower. Are those
1: seeds that you could then plant like a regular? Like so most it other does plants? produce something that looks like a seed, but a seed is where there is genetic material from both parents and, and garlic uh, that we grow doesn't have true seed production. So the center of origin for garlic is Kazakhstan or, or um, somewhere nearby. And um, for the last, Five or six thousand years that we've been uh, growing garlic, someone figured out that if you rip off that scape, you get a larger bulb. And that, um, that scape removal over generations has, I don't know if it's evolved or if the garlic has just figured out that it doesn't need to produce true seed. Like uh, seed is a pretty energy intense process and and so these vegetative structures ball bills are are um are are the result of that there are garlic cultivars that do produce true seed but it's they're they're far and few between and and there are breeding programs that are are looking at trying to incorporate that older genetics into what we have now but um yeah that that ball bill you could plant in the ground. It's going to be free of your normal storage pathogens that would normally be on your cloves. It's going to um, be free of bacteria, but it's not going to be free of the viruses, uh, most likely. Like uh, if there were viruses in the, in the mother plant, they're probably going to be transferred to the ball bill uh, with, in the umble. And uh, so the only true way to avoid viruses would be through a clean seed program.
0: Right. And if you have some of that clean seed and you take some of the ball bills, then you might start accumulating viruses, but you'll probably be nematode free. And you could even increase the multiplication with those. Right. With those yeah. So in.
1: I talked earlier about that multiplication rate being 6x yeah. because of the six cloves. But with ball bills, if are you might want to uh, remove the scapes the first year just to promote bulb development on that new clean seed. But if you were to leave it for year two or year three and, and leave those scapes, you could take those scapes because they're free of those viruses and plant out those ball bells and those scapes. And um, now your multiplication rate is not one to six, it's one to 30 or one to 25. And you could really bulk it up in the third or fourth year, but be mindful that all of those little ball bells, each one of them now take three years to reach a marketable bulb. Right. Right. But once you have that system
0: going in theory, the production after five years will continue to supply your crop that you're selling and the next seed, and then you can keep it coming along. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I want to ask you about what you said, something about scaping and increasing bulb size, but maybe we'll get to a question that just came in from the audience at this point. Um, So you're talking about keeping the clean seed over five years. Could the garlic get infected
1: still with viruses during those five years? Yes. And, uh, but it's, it's going to take a while for your clean seed to get infected to the same rate of your conventional stock. And so there's no no answer as to how long that will take to happen, but you're likely to see that yield boost for three, four years, um, like whatever your max is, you're probably going to get that for the first three or four years. And then it will probably start to taper off as, as as aphids become an issue or other sap sucking insects, and it might go down. But like I visited a field uh, in 2018 that was that 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 received roundels from the original clean seed program, and it was in an eighth season. And uh they didn't use netting. They didn't have a greenhouse to propagate this stuff. Like it went out in the field the first year, and it was the cleanest field that I've ever walked through. the The plants look fantastic. Um, I couldn't find any, any sort of pathogens. Um, it, it was great. And, and the, the plants were, I would say, still 25% uh, larger than any other field that I had visited at that point in the season that year. And so I think that I'm being very conservative with that five-year uh, uh, system I think you could push that to seven or eight years, make it more economical, maybe start at, you know, 75 roundels instead of the 450, take six years to reach that 10 acres instead of five. Now it's even more lucrative and um, you're still pushing out viruses and you're still getting those yield gains. Yeah, it's interesting because
0: I think if I think and compare it to sort of potatoes, it's, it's mostly like sort of a seven years of generations before. You know that seed is considered too old, and you're not allowed to grow it again um, before it has to be started. So, so no real seed potato gets longer than seven generations. I'm assuming most of the garlic seed that's being planted, not from clean stock, has been, you know, Forever. propagated for like yeah, yeah, decades yeah, decades. It sounds and, like and we
1: don't know how these cultivars respond to the different viruses. So right right now, we've got data to. Show that with music, we get that 25 to 50% yield boost, but what about the other 15 cultivars that perform well in the field that are, are just as good as music? And so part of the um, research that the, the SPUD the unit um, received a special initiatives grant, and that's allowing them to conduct experiments to determine the best media, the, the best density, the the best lighting fertilizer and and as well as add five new cultivars to their tissue culture germplasm so that three years from now growers will be able to order not just music but five other hardneck cultivars that are good for our temperate climate right great, great. Um, i want to go back
0: to the thing you mentioned uh, the increase in removing scapes what kind of benefit is there
1: to remove scapes so john zanstra has done a lot of work with uh ball bill production and scape removal and one of his trials back in 2000 uh found that removing the scape um early could increase the bulb size in music and uh this is in bridgetown ontario uh, by 20 to 30 percent so we're, we're we're talking about a bigger bulb if you take off that scape three to four weeks before harvest the longer you leave the scape on the uh, lower your yield potential is. And I, I forget what the actual curve looks like, but um, basically, as soon as there's energy going into that bulb production, that's energy that's going into bulbills instead of your bulb. And if you're only selling the, if you're only worried about the bulb, then you, you want that energy going into the bulb. So growers, um, the best way to escape is to do it by hand. You're, um, uh, you're breaking off that that um, you're maybe able to sell it for two, $4 a pound, just like you do with fiddleheads. It's great in guacamole or pesto. And, um, and if you do it early enough, you get that 20 to 30% yield increase. If, um, you wait too long, that yield increase isn't there.
0: So I'm snapping them off. by hand seems a little bit, um, <laughs> labor intensive.
1: 14, uh, to 16 hours per acre per acre. Per, per one person. per person per person. Yeah, that yeah. seems pretty. Seems like it could be quite a big
0: expense. Is there a way to sort of mechanize that process? You could. I
1: would avoid doing so. So um, snapping is the best way because you're often not coming into contact with the vascular tissue when you snap. But with a tickle bar mower or a bush hog or a flail mower, those knives are coming into contact with that vascular tissue. And that vascular tissue is able to take in viruses. And so if one plant has a virus, now you're spreading it to all the other plants in the field. And um, not only that, but it takes a while for the scape to get above the leaf canopy. Um, and, it, and it does that loop or double loop or half loop, depending on what cultivar we're talking about for hard hardnecks. Um, so, if you want to get that yield benefit, um, the, the best yield benefit is right when it comes out of the plant. Um, you can wait for it to curl once, um, and that, that's great for selling the scape, uh, but it's still not above the crop canopy. Um, you're, you're not getting as good of a yield increase as just getting it right as soon as it comes out. But if you get it too early, not all the plants are uniform throughout the field, so you're going to have to make several passes. Um, once it becomes Above the crop canopy, and theoretically, you could get through the crop with a flail mower or a, a sickle bar mower. Um, it's it's past the point of there being a yield benefit unless you're hitting some of those leaves. And if you damage the top leaf, you can expect a yield decrease by seventeen percent. So I said you get a twenty to thirty percent yield increase. Now that's um, three to Thirteen percent yield increase. Hit the second leaf, uh, you could expect a twenty-five percent yield decrease. So by hitting the top two leaves with that mechanical um, scape removal device, uh, w- what's the point? Now, now you've wasted fuel and time to go through the crop. You've probably damaged th- some some plants because they're large, and you know tractor tires are, are going to knock some over and then you're not getting the yield benefit and you're moving viruses around. So, um, I would either leave it or go through by hand, um, either drop them on the ground or collect them and try to sell them. Interesting. Very cool. Um, <laughs> I want to go back to another thing you mentioned earlier.
0: Um, actually, I will pause on that and I'll go to another, uh, audience question that we just had come in when you break them by hand. Um, I'm just kind of touching a little bit, but when you first see them, you first begin to curl, begin to straighten out. If you've got uh,
1: an acre of plants, just as soon as you see them, snap them off, right on, you're good to go. If you are hiring labor to go through and break them off, you probably want to wait till they're in their first curl, not have completed their first curl. That, that's a good time to go through, and you'll probably get 90% of them, depending on the cultivar, uh, at that point. Um, obviously, you know, it, it is important to train whoever's helping you scape to look for them deep within the plant and, and snap them off. And it's also important to snap opposed to pull, because if you pull them out, um, you might actually, it might actually break off below the first or second leaf or the the top two leaves. And if you, if you lose that scape, that's the internal support for those top two leaves and you could have that plant bend over or or lodge uh, halfway or a quarter of the way uh, from the top of the plant so um sooner the better if you have to wait to because you only want to go through the crop uh once uh wait till the first curl and if it's past the point of the first curl and they're starting to produce ball bills uh just just leave them. It, it probably isn't, isn't worth the time. Right. Um, if you cut them with a
0: knife, maybe instead of snapping them off, a uh, knife. Spreading viruses.
1: So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So another question that came in, do you have to, ste-
1: can you sterilize a knife maybe to avoid spreading? Is there, do we know
0: anything you gotta about, be, you uh, gotta about that? You um, got to be careful
1: on your knife sterilization too, because uh, some things could be a little phytotoxic. You might see, um, you know, working in a pathology lab and pruning tomatoes, um, or, uh, you know, you disinfect the knife or the scalpel and, and when you move on to the next plant, if there's still a little bit of, uh, disinfected on there, you could see some virus-like symptoms or some modeling or, or some anab- abnormal plant growth after that. Um, but yeah, theoretically you could sterilize that knife, um, And then dip it in water to get rid of that disinfectant, uh, or, or let it dry or shake it off and cut the next plant. Um, yeah. And you get a cleaner cut. I don't know if that would be quicker than going around and and just snapping them. Uh, if, if you're going to that much effort with a knife or with scissors, uh, to me, it it makes sense to just snap them and, and you're not coming into contact with that vascular tissue. Thank you.
0: Um, hopefully, answered your questions. If you have more questions, you can continue to uh, put them in the Q and A or, or on uh, on Facebook if you're listening through Facebook Live. I want to also ask you about something you mentioned about nematodes. I have a special interest in nematodes, um, so my ears kind of perked up when you said that. Uh, but you mentioned stem and bulb nematode, I believe, which I haven't had a whole lot of work with. So, what sort of what has Ontario's experience been with with stem and bulb nematode? in garlic
1: it's probably the biggest pathogen that we deal with and uh currently there are no products registered for control in ontario um it's unclear whether soil fumigants that are registered would eliminate bulb and stem nematodes in the soil but the nematode primarily lives in and is transferred to different fields in the planting stock um so really the best, the best route to avoid it is to test that planting stock before it's planted in the field. Because let's say that you purchased planting stock from a grower that has very low levels of nematodes in the soil, maybe 10 nematodes per gram. And, and that, that clove is maybe two to three grams in size. So we're talking about 20 to 30 nematodes. Um, clove looks great. You plant the clove next year, bulb looks great. Uh, those individual cloves might have 100 nematodes per gram. It's still kind of below uh, a threshold where you would see any symptom development. And then uh, you plant that again. And then the next year, um, that 100 uh, nematodes turns into 1,000 or 500 or even 300 nematodes per gram. And with all those little microscopic groundworms making holes in that clove, um, secondary pathogens like fusarium other root rots get in there they cause rotting it could destroy the basal plates so when you pull up the plant not only is it rotted and there might be some white mycelial growth that looks like fusarium but the roots might stay in the ground um, and it it isn't really until that third year uh, where it reaches a tipping point where a large percentage of plants are rotten and aren't marketable. So if you're in that first or second year, those plants are still marketable. They still could be used as table stock in a perfect world. People would um, say that they are uh, to to not plant them, to not use them as planting stock in their own garden so that the the problem doesn't spread. Uh, But a single female can lay 500 eggs and it takes, you know, 20, Thirty days for this nematode to complete its life cycle, and if there's no pest control products registered, like not now, you've got soil that's infested. You've got these this this planting stock that's infested, and a lot of growers have had to just start over and and um, plant on soil that has never had garlic before, or and and wait four or five or some unknown amount of time before coming back to that field that was infested. So until we have um, products registered and, and we've submitted two products um, to our uh, pest management uh, regulatory agency um, one would be a dip uh, that would need to be applied uh, by a mechanic or uh, need to be planted mechanically so there wouldn't be any touching and then there'd be another one that would be in a drench over the crop once it's planted and that would be um, you know, you could, you could plant those theoretically by hand or using a mechanical planner and then go over top and, and drench it in. Uh, but so hopefully those are registered and, and that will help suppress the nematodes. Um, and maybe over time we can get to a point where they are no longer an issue, but until then uh, management strategies, uh, observe that four to five year crop rotation, don't plan in fields that have had garlic before. Uh, Make sure that your planting stock is is free of it. Test before you incorporate new cultivars, especially if you're planting them right next to the cultivars that are nematode free and you've had for decades on the farm. Um, In your four year rotation, use crops like cereals or uh, brassicas like brown mustard that do not let the nematode reproduce as quickly. and, and over time, the, the level of bald and stem nematode in that soil should theoretically go down. And if you can plant on um, soil that is uphill or upstream from last year's crop, because nematodes not only can they move in, in dirt that's on equipment or tires or on your shoes, uh, it can, they, they can also move in overland flow so if you have an infested field with a hill in it and you plant the first year at the top of the hill and then the next next year you plant a little bit lower um, that overland flow could carry nematodes down into your um, non-infested nematode free crop Um, so there are a few things to consider and uh, hopefully in the future we'll have some products that allow us to free ourselves of the nematodes and then not have to use them after four or five years.
0: Yep. Okay, great. We had an audience question come in as well. Uh, you mentioned brown mustard, I think, as as rotational crop. Um, but the question is sort of around trap crops. Are there any trap crops, if you have them in the soil you could use? Is there anything other than brown mustard or is there much research on that?
1: Brown mustard is probably the best crop for nematodes that I can think of and, and it's really important so the main, the main active that you want to hone in for brown mustard is, um, the glucosinolates and the glucosinolates are released when, uh, are our greatest potential in that crop when that brown mustard is flowering. And so rototilling and incorporating and, and breaking up that plant tissue and getting it under the soil um, is, is key because that those glucosinolates, that gas is going to, um, be what, what kills some life stages, not all some life stages of the nematode. And you want to incorporate maybe with a rototiller and then seal, um, whether it's a roller, uh, or with a, uh, a black plastic or with, um, uh, what other method, uh, applying water over top to to, to seal that the that that gas in um all within a short period of time like 15 20 minutes to have the greatest impact so ideally you'd have two tractors um you know one one or maybe three one flailing or bush hogging the brown mustard uh, the second one you a cultivator or not a cultivator rototiller rototilling it in and then the third one coming along to seal um either with plastic or um, roll it with water or, or something. And, and, and that way those gases can kill some life stages of the nematode. So the, I'd say that's the best trap crop we have for bulb and stem nematode. Great. Uh, hopefully that answers the question.
0: Um, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask a little bit about, um, I don't know the future going forward, what you see as sort of the bigger opportunities for garlic. Um, are there any sort of gaps needed to, uh, That you think we could look at in the future
1: to kind of uh, fulfill some opportunities for the crop. I think uh, the biggest opportunities in garlic is where we've devoted a lot of this uh, time today is is with the clean seed. So a twenty five to fifty percent yield uh, gain from removing viruses and, and getting clean planting stock that's huge. That's crazy it's crazy that, uh, you could. there's that much potential that we're leaving behind. Um, another thing that I've seen, uh, a lot of growers start to implement in Ontario, which is really exciting is drip irrigation. And so garlic is a huge, um, uh, like it, it really responds well to irrigation. It has a rooting depth of, uh, one to two feet or 30 to 60 centimeters. And, um, you know, it, it does well with an inch of rain per week, uh, on heavier soils, maybe two inches per week on sand. And, um, I would say that drip is better because not only are you able to fertigate, but, um, you know, with, with the overhead irrigation, you have potential to splash around pathogens on the leaves. There's a lot of evaporation, a lot of waste. Um, so we've had, uh, I've seen personally, um, 150 acres in the last two years uh either pivot from no irrigation or overhead irrigation to drip irrigation and and they those crops looked phenomenal this year it was uh pretty exciting to see because we had those five or six weeks of drought and uh um wow like uh those those fields looked a lot better through the um evolving stage and, and then when we got all this moisture they just you know kept chugging along where other plants um you know they reached bulbing there wasn't enough water and and then we got all this rain but they were already shutting down and it was it was kind of too late so i would say that there's an up to 35 percent yield loss due to the lack of irrigation in a dry year like you look back at uh last year 2020 we had uh, a pretty dry first of july and late June, so during bulbing. And then in 2018, it was a particularly dry year. And um, I don't have official numbers, but when I talked to growers, they said, yeah, 30, 35%, uh, I I left compared to a different year on, on the table because I didn't irrigate that, that section of the crop. And um, so, yeah, irrigation is, a, is an easy thing that you can implement next year, um, even if clean seed isn't available. Um, and I'd say the other opportunities in garlic is, uh, you know, growers harvest, they're, they're sitting on a a, a lot of garlic, a, a lot of a, a fresh plant and, and the market becomes flooded in September and October and, and everyone lowers the price. We just want to get rid of it. We want to, we want to sell it um and, and reclaim some of our costs. Like it's, it's a first crop that a lot of horticultural growers are harvesting. And it's kind of nice to get some returns early and get it sold and not, not not worry about it, forget about it. And we're, we're, yeah, we're leaving a lot on the table because we're afraid to store the crop long-term. Like you see garlic from other countries in our grocery stores, uh, 12 months of the year. And it's not because they're growing it, um, uh, at a different time than, um, that than we are it's it's because they're they figured out storage and they're growing cultivars that are better adapted to storage so um you know selling at six dollars a pound in november and uh maybe if if you were to wait to december you could get 10 or or even more in march february um you know that's a 25 or 40 percent uh opportunity that, that you could, um, figure out if, if you could, um, get storage dialed in. And so somewhere between 65 and 75% relative humidity is, is where I think that that sweet spot is. Um, there's a lot of debate on what the right temperature is. Some growers swear by keeping it right at freezing or, or hovering right above freezing. And, um, you know, that limits a lot of pathogen growth and growth and doesn't allow the, the crop to sprout. Um, You want to avoid that fridge temperature to 10 degrees because that can promote sprouting in a lot of different cultivars. And then there are some growers that keep at 12 to 14 your, your, or um, like wine fridge temperatures. Uh, So um, that temperature is really interesting because if, if you're taking that crop and you're putting it into a supermarket, that's at a and I've just said all of these temperatures in uh, in Celsius, but in Fahrenheit, um, you know, if, if we're, we're taking the crop from 60 degrees to 80 or uh, 15 to uh, 22 or wh- whatever a supermarket is at, um, that's less of a change in temperature than going from just at freezing to room temperature. And so garlic that is stored um, above 10 degrees or above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, um, there's less change and it lasts on the shelves longer when we're, we're trying to sell it. So dialing in these temperatures and relative humidity is key, but what's even more important is making sure that when you put the crop into storage that it was cured properly, it was cured quickly, 48 hours is, is ideal. Um, This this passive allowing the crop to cure over a week or two week period, um, that also allows the pathogens to adapt and slowly acclimatize to those drier conditions. And then we could have problems in storage with bulb mites or uh, penicillium green mold or or other storage pathogens. So um, a quick cure is best. And there is this myth that temperature at curing is important. So we increase the temperature to increase the amount of moisture that we can fit in a cubic meter or, um, of of air. And what's more important is lowering the relative humidity. And whether that's through a dehumidifier or even an air conditioner, I've walked past a um, a drying curing facility that was super cold and and. Um, often air conditioners uh, on an industrial scale are, are, are more likely uh, to be available compared to a dehumidifier, right? So lowering that relative humidity is more important than worrying about the temperature at curing and getting that relative humidity down to, to 40%. Um, getting all of the crop in that space at once is key. Don't keep adding new crop to your curing room because every time you add new crop, that relative humidity is going to spike. And the stuff that was put in there at the beginning, well, it's now going through a seven, 10 or 14 day cure, because the fluctuation of relative humidity, um, like it's going up and down throughout that whole time. And uh, so there's a lot of different points that I I mentioned there. Uh, The take home message is short cure, relative humidity is key. And um, figuring out what Storage temperature is right for your cultivars is is important, and if you can meet that February, March, April market, you can demand a premium uh, because right now we don't have hardneck garlic available in April
0: that's locally sourced. Ton of great info there. Um, really appreciate that, Travis. I'll I'll um, go through a little spiel at the end, if uh, to leave some time for any uh, any more audience questions to come in. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's been great. We, uh, this show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, which is a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes region, and uh, it's sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management, so thanks to them. We broadcast live via Zoom every uh, Wednesday, 12.30 Eastern, 11.30 Central. Uh, every Wednesday from the first week of March to the first week of September, uh, interviewing farmers, researchers, and others about everything to do with vegetable growers. Um, we talked quite a bit about viruses this week, so that probably leads nicely into our program next week, uh, where Natalie Hoytel from the uh, University of Minnesota Extension is going to interview Brett Ahrens uh, with the University of Minnesota about viruses and other plant stress symptoms. So what are you looking for in the, in the field and, and um, when to submit a sample and, and that sort of thing. Um, Travis, looks like uh, we've answered all the questions. So thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for all the listeners as well for joining us. Um, really appreciate you having you on. Anytime. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone. We'll uh, talk to you next Wednesday. Same time, same place, glveg.net slash listen.